from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. There's a new nominee to lead the Office of Management and Budget. President Joe Biden has nominated Shalanda Young for the post. She's currently both the Deputy Director of Budget and Acting Director of OMB. There has not been a permanent OMB director during the Biden administration. If the Senate confirms her, Young would play a critical role in implementing President Biden's vision for the executive branch. Young's nomination comes just after the release of the president's management agenda, which focuses on using data and IT to achieve government goals. The U.S. Marine Corps has the lowest COVID-19 vaccine compliance out of all the military branches. CBS News says that only 91 percent of Marines are fully vaccinated as of Monday. The U.S. Navy, however, is 97 percent fully vaccinated, making it the highest COVID-19 vaccination record of the military services. The federal vaccine mandate deadline has just moved to 2022, giving the DOD more time to achieve full vaccination compliance. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is looking for information about trends and investment needs from multiple areas of emerging tech trends. Those areas include artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, and more. NIST has issued a request for information with the goal of identifying, refining, and guiding development in eight technology areas. The deadline for response to the RFI is January 31, 2022. Ukraine's defense intelligence chief says Russia is moving troops and preparing to attack his country, but this time in a much more devastating way than during the conflict that started in 2014 and saw around 14,000 Ukrainians killed. Howard Altman is senior managing editor of Military Times. Howard, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, give us a big picture view. What are Russia's interests in action against Ukraine? Well, it's really unknown exactly what they're going to do. I had a recent discussion with uh, Kirill Budinov, who is the head of Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency, and he told me that there's about 92,000 Russian troops arrayed around Ukraine's border, and they're preparing to attack in late January, early February timeframe. And that attack would uh, consist of armor, air strikes. There would be uh, paratroops in the western part of Ukraine, in the uh, sorry, uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. There would be um, uh, incursion, perhaps in Bel through Belarus, and then some uh, incursions via the sea by through uh, Odessa and Mariupol. So it would be a, a major uh, attack, unlike anything that uh, has seen so far since. 2014. But what is Russia doing right now in Ukraine? Because I understand there's some disinformation campaigns going on inside the country. Well, Budinov told me that before any attack would happen, that they're uh, preparing to try to destabilize the Ukraine government through the anti-COVID vaccine campaign, for instance, through uh, other means to say that the government isn't taking care of them. There's something called Warnergate, which is a kind of a complex uh, controversy involving some members of the Wagner um, private group that's a Russian mercenaries. Um, so Budinov was saying that the, the Russians are trying to sow dissatisfaction and um, destabilize Ukraine before 
So are American intelligence assessments the same? Do they also, are they seeing the same thing? According to Budenhoff, yes, that they're very similar. And the U.S. is constantly warned that they're concerned by these Russian troop movements. Um, just yesterday, Mark Carlin uh, from the Pentagon talked about how they were worrisome. Um, the, the Pentagon's mentioned several times how these movements are of concern. So, uh, as you mentioned, the general that you spoke to, the Ukrainian general, says the attack is coming in either January or February. He, he, he said they're preparing for an attack. Now, their uh, Minister of Defense, Alexei Reznikov, told the Washington Post he doesn't know if Putin's made that decision, and the U.S. doesn't really know either. The Pentagon has consistently said that they don't know what's in Putin's mind. So it, it's really unknown. No, nobody knows that. Nobody really knows. <laughs> but what if that did happen? What would be the geopolitical consequences of Russia attacking Ukraine? Well, it would be huge because it would be, you know, in the, in the previous incursion into Ukraine in 2014, it was done by so-called little green men. It was in this sort of gray zone. It wasn't completely clear, although everybody knew it was the Russians involved. This would be different. You'd be seeing Russian tanks, Russian paratroopers, you know, Russian aircraft. That would be a, a big game changer um, in terms of uh, an attack on Ukraine. So what can the Pentagon do to deter that kind of action? Or is it already too late? Well, the Pentagon, there's been no U.S. troop movements or equipment movements in reaction to this particular situation. I talked to the Pentagon yesterday. Uh, there had been a change in philosophy overall between the Trump and Biden administrations when the Biden administration came in. Uh, they opted to not move 25,000 troops out of Germany, actually plus it up about 500. So there was that philosophy change, but there's been no um, U.S. troop or movements or equipment movements. The Pentagon is not uh, saying what it's going to do. Uh, it's a decision by the White House. The White House hasn't really said what it will do, and there's discussions about additional sanctions, discussions about additional uh, weaponry provided to Ukraine, but there's no discussion about what will happen if, if Russia invades and what U.S. troops will do. What are Americans' strategic interests in Ukraine? Why should Americans care whether or not Russia attacks Ukraine? Well, that's always a, a very good question. I mean, there's a, there's a historical context and a current context. The historical context is that in 1994, Ukraine, which had uh, just broken off from the Soviet Union, which had fallen apart, had the third largest nuclear arms arsenal in the world. And so there was an agreement that was drawn up back then that Russia would not attack um, Ukraine if, if Ukraine got rid of those arms. So that was the historical context. Current context is that Ukraine is uh, a bulwark against Russian incursion, their democracy that the U.S. supports, that um, there's also other bigger picture items. You guarantee that China is going to be watching what the U.S. does in reaction to any particular Russian incursion into Ukraine. And they've already used the uh, chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan in information operations against Taiwan, saying, look, the U.S. cut and run back then, so um, you know China's going to be watching very carefully. So there's a big picture and, and smaller picture. And what is Ukraine hoping to get from Washington quickly, just in the time we have left? Sure. Ukraine, Budenov told me that they'd like additional air, missile, and drone defense systems. Um, jamming devices. They like the Patriot missile system, the CRAM system, those kinds of things. All right. Well, Howard, thanks so much. I guess we'll see what happens. Thanks.
You can find a link to Howard's article at govmatters.tv resources. Coming next, U.S. adversaries are lurking in the gray zone. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how American intelligence can sift through all the data to clear up the picture. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. U.S. adversaries like China and Russia are stepping up efforts to engage in cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns. Those actions are part of the gray zone and an, an area of intensifying strategic competition. The increasing frequency of adversarial efforts is revealing cracks in the U.S. government's data sharing and analyses. Emily Harding is deputy director and senior fellow for the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Emily, welcome. Thank you. All right, so, you know, I'm, I briefly mentioned this idea of the gray zone. Tell us exactly what it is. So Americans tend to think of the spectrum of war and peace in just those terms. There's war and then there's peace. Our adversaries, on the other hand, think of it as much more of a gray spectrum. They think about peacetime activities, but then they think about before wartime activities, these measures short of war. And that can be things like spreading mis and disinformation. That can be things like China building islands in the South China Sea. That can even go to private military corporations moving around the globe and advancing that country's interests, even if it's deniable activity. So how do they block the U.S.'s ability to see that kind of activity? The deniability piece is really the key. There's just enough of an arm's length between what the adversary is doing and saying and what the people on the ground are doing and saying on their behalf. So mis- and disinformation, for example, when the Russians tried to influence the 2016 elections, they didn't come out and say, hey, we're Russia and this is our social media posts. They came out pretending to be American citizens, thus hiding from the U.S. government. And protected by First Amendment rights. Exactly. So let's talk about data. What kind of data does the U.S. need to start collecting? So the problem is that the U.S. government needs a lot of little data points from a whole bunch of different areas. So you can look at social media as one area where data points would be helpful. A lot of adversaries reveal their activities there, but because, as you mentioned, with the First Amendment rights, it's very difficult to uncover what they're actually up to. You also need a whole host of traditional intelligence collection methods, like imagery or SIGINT, but then it can be things as simple as open source intelligence. There's press reporting out there. There's tracking data through ads. There's all kinds of opportunities to use publicly available information to track gray zone activity. All right, so it's not, just a, it's not enough to just um, collect the data. You've got to make it into actionable intelligence. How do you do that? That's right, and it's the hardest part. So you can collect all the data you want, but if you can't search it, if you can't exploit it, if you can't gather it and manipulate it in different ways, then you're never going to know what you have in that data. So take, for example, imagery of a large area like the Pacific. You can never look at every single piece of imagery that you collect. There's just too much of it, and a human only has you know, so many hours in the day. But you can use tools like AI, ML, to try and help you sort through that data. I would imagine this is extremely hard to understand this kind of activity. I mean, you know, a tank moving or a bomb exploding, that's easy, right? This kind of thing is, how do you even detect this kind of stuff? Well, so you do need a large variety of information, and you have to have analysts who are trained to look for what we like to call subtle oddities. It's not just a big bomb going off that's going to say, okay, something happened, clearly we need to explore it. It's seeing something come across your desk that's a little bit strange, and then saying, well, that's weird. How can I pursue it and dig a little deeper and see what else I can find? 
Um, there's an organization out there called Bellingcat that has proven themselves extremely capable at this kind of activity. They can find one or two little things that look strange about the little green men, the private military corporations, and then from there, track them all the way back to an organization like, say, the GRU, which is one of Russian's intelligence services. This is a private company? This is a private company, and they're very good at what they do. All right, so tell me about the Global Information Dominance Experiments. This was put on by Northcom. Right, so this is a real step forward by the U.S. military. And my colleague at CSIS, uh, Colonel Matt Strohmeyer, has uh, led this effort. Um, so one of the things that they did was they took all of these disparate data flows and they combined them into one big database that was searchable, that was usable. Um, our colleagues in the military often talk about having to search 11 different systems to try to find the information that they're looking for. And you can imagine how much time that takes and how tedious it is. And you've got to remember what you found on System 1 by the time you get to System 11. So what Guide did was they took all of these different data streams and combined them into one big data lake that was searchable, usable, and created a common operating picture for the operators. And it just dramatically speeds up what we can do as far as receiving information, analyzing that information, and then using it in, for example, a battle. And, and this is what JADC2 is trying to do, right? JADC2 will hopefully get there someday where it has all of the different pieces linked together and usable instantly. Okay, but that's, the linking is the issue here. It's interoperability. So how do you ensure that? and not just within the government, but with private industry because there's proprietary information involved. That's exactly right. So it's gonna to have to be a partnership between the US government and private industry. And on the US government side, what they're going to have to do is demand of private industry that the data they provide is interoperable. That your bespoke data system doesn't go into a bespoke database and then just sit there where it's unusable. Instead, that data needs to come out of that database and go into this bigger data lake where you can get to the whole thing all at once. And it just means that the government's gonna to have to pay a little bit more for that data, honestly, which the government doesn't like to do. Um, but it also means that industry needs to be a little bit more flexible. Instead of giving five contracts for five different points of access, it needs to give general access to this data that the government desperately needs in order to compete with, say, China. The other thing that you mentioned in your piece is data literacy and getting high-tech workforce and upskilling the workforce. What are your recommendations about that? So this is going to be a massive challenge for industry and for the government, just finding the tech talent that we need to accomplish these tasks in the future. The government's going to have to compete, and I think that there have been a lot of great recommendations lately about doing things to create flows of people in and out of the tech sector. So if you could create this digital reserve corps that can come and serve in the government for a month every year, or if you could create a program where somebody coming out of school gets their loans paid for, and then at the same time they get you know, three years, four years of government service, we get their tech talent, they get their loans paid off, and in the end, Silicon Valley gets a herd of really tremendous talent that understand how the government works and what the government really needs. All right, well, Emily, thanks so much for coming in. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much. You can find a link to Emily's commentary at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, is it time for a new approach to defense procurement reform? Straight ahead on Government Matters, why acquisition triage might be the answer to meet national security needs. We'll be right back. The Pentagon's Acquisition and Sustainment Office, known as ANS, hasn't had an undersecretary to lead it since January. 
The Defense ANS office makes it possible for cutting-edge warfighting capabilities to be delivered to the troops, which is a challenge without a confirmed undersecretary. Jeff Bialos is former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Affairs, currently a partner at Eversheds Sutherland. Jeff, welcome. Pleasure to be here. All right, so tell us, Jeff, what have been the challenges since January when there was a, an undersecretary in place? The, the problem is that the acquisition system, as we know it, think of it like as a, a multi-complicated orchestra or maybe a carrier that has to be moved. It needs someone to orchestrate. It needs someone to make hard and tough decisions. And with the out of political uh, appointee at the top, there's nobody there to do it. There are acting people who are in necessarily going to be risk averse and not make those decisions. So frankly, the system is in some degree of stasis. I, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people have reacted to this piece I just wrote on this subject from the system, which tells me and tends to confirm that diagnosis. That people really care about this. Right. But has this actually impacted the acquiring of military capabilities? It slowed decision making and it slowed the ability to align what we're doing acquisition program-wise with our policies on addressing near-peer competitors and the like. You said that um, the ANS office should, quote, do acquisition triage. What does that mean? That's right. What I mean by that is the last several undersecretaries have embarked on various kinds of acquisition reform, systemic change of the system, dividing acquisition from research, uh, OTAs, use of other transaction authority, uh, consortium, all sorts of things. Many of them haven't worked. They take years to mature if they do work. And I think with an undersecretary who's only going to be in office here, even if they're announced and you know, maybe it's coming in the next couple of days, you're likely to only be in office two and a half, two and three quarter years. I say instead of going for systemic change, go for focused outcomes to bring our national security solutions to warfighters. In other words, acquisition practice rather than policy, if you will. Well, you mentioned OTAs, other transaction authorities. Isn't that, I mean, that's in place. Isn't that a good solution to speed things along? It could be used the right way and in the right hands, and that's example. We don't know what, we need to look and do a system check on that. What have we been doing on that? It's been in use. We, we, we took a lot of experimental steps like that. They've been going on, but we need to do a system check now on which of these things are working and which aren't. But by triage, I meant three things in particular, if I may, okay? Um, one is let's align our acquisition programs with our um, national security needs. We, at Washington is all a talk about near-peer competitors. We need to make sure the programs match that. But at the same time, um, you know, even though there's not an appetite for any more Afghanistan-type uh, incursions, the reality is what our armed forces have been doing the last 20 years is a range of low-intensity things from humanitarian to peacekeeping to... Um, and we'll still have to continue doing that. And we'll still that. have to do that, absolutely. And we need to make sure we have the equipage and the capability to do that. So I'm a little concerned in the chorus of Washington today on near-peer competitors that people want to leave this behind and, and we need to focus across the board. That's one. Two is uh, what I call work through. Okay, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's not about acquisition policy. It's about looking at the large and important programs one by one and looking at performance challenges in cost, in capability, technical performance, in speed of delivery. And that's not done by grandiose policy. It's done by working through one by one. And that's the kind of thing that's probably 
missing in action to some degree today. Okay. Third is what I call pull through. Okay. Which what I mean by that is um, you know every day you wake up and you hear we're falling behind. Woe is me. Especially right. artificial intelligence, hypersonics. <laughs> a near, a near, a near Sputnik moment we just heard, right? Yeah. Okay. I think what the Pentagon needs to do is do a really metric look at what it means to fall behind. To so look at each of these areas where we've been spending a good deal of money over a number of years. Where are we in the capability development? Are these things mature? Can they be? pulled into programs of record. The, our side of the house is doing research in all these things. The issue in the Pentagon is always what we call the valley of death, getting things from our research into production. Okay. And so the problem here is that, again, this is where having the orchestra leader is important because, you know, left to their own devices, programs are risk-averse. They're focused on short-term, um, you know, necessarily cost, schedule, and can they get the delivery out the door tomorrow. When you talk about injecting new technology into programs of record, it necessarily is a disruptor, and I think you need senior leadership to say, let's do these things. You know, your article says that the DOD should, quote, launch accountability reviews to address major program and contractor-specific right. performance issues. Are you telling me that's not being done? I don't think it's being done at a, grand, a, a, a top level, no. I think it's being done, uh, you know, in the normal course in the system. But, you know, when I was in government, we, we did things like that. We'd call in the major contractor. We'd go through 10 or 15 of their programs on a Saturday. And, you know, there would be some head knocking going on, frankly. And I think you need to do that, but it needs to be done by, it doesn't have the effect if it's not done by a confirmed senior leader. All okay, right. Fundamentally. Well, Jeff, a lot of people want to see this happen, so let's hope that, that that gets done. Thank you so much for being on the program. Pleasure to be here with you today. You can find a link to Jeff's article at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website. And don't forget to listen to our Government Matters podcast. It's available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also listen to episodes on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.